You're listening to Story Power, the podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. These are the stories of everyday people changing the world. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. Today on the show, I'm welcoming Justin McRoberts. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing really well, actually. I'm excited because um, I don't really know a lot about you, but I'm a huge fan of your writing and your work. And so I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, You have a podcast, actually, and it's called At Sea. Can you tell us a bit about that? I am interviewing people. Um, predominantly my guests are, are folks who are, uh, creating and maintaining, uh, pathways for what comes next in the areas of religious practice and, uh, the communal cultural engagement. So the, the places and spaces in which, uh, we find one another and develop a sense or find a sense of meaning, um, institutionally and traditionally have kind of falling apart. They work for fewer people. They work for fewer kinds of people. Um, some of those seasons have just come to an end. And um, I like talking to folks who are forging pathways for uh, connections between uh, between people, between people and the world they live in, between people and God. Um, because I think that's what next is, is not necessarily this monolithic like cultural good, but the people who are creating Wow. So tell me a little bit about who you are and just share your bio with us. I live in Martinez, California. Uh, Apparently it is birthplace of the martini. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. It's just a thing that's true. Um, (laughs) uh, I'm not a martini guy. I've tried. It might be the olives. I don't really know, but it's not my bag of chips. Um, I was born in Oakland. I grew up in Concord. Uh, Conquer's just outside of Oakland. Um, went to college between Oakland and Concord. So I've literally been in the San Francisco Bay Area the entirety of my life. And I now live in Martinez, which is in the same area. Uh, with I've got two kids. I've got a 10-year-old uh, and a 2-year-old, 3-year-old. My mom lives across town. She's a hero of mine. That's awesome. Uh, she's in her <laughs> mid-70s. Yeah, she's, she's an incredible person. Most of the things I like about myself are things that I recognize in my mom. That's awesome. Um, and I, I do, I run a podcast. I write books. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the, the next book that's coming out. Um, yeah. I, <clears throat> I just got back from a trip on the East Coast where I spent uh, three days with gap year students talking about like life practices and prayer and community. So I do some teaching stuff, it's like pastoral type stuff. I do a bunch of different stuff. Most of what I do is the kind of stuff I interview my podcast guests about. Like I try to forge and find pathways to what's next with regards to the connections between people and between people. And hmm. So are you a theologian, a pastor? Do you have, you know, traditional training in these areas? Just because I really uh, don't know you. So Yeah, I know. I have, I'm not a theologian. God save the queen. Uh, like, no, I, I don't have, I don't have any like theological, I've read books and all that stuff, but like, I don't have any theological training. I did go to, 
I was a licensed minister with the Evangelical Covenant Church for a number of years. And so I had mm-hmm. to go like get a license and do all that. But it wasn't like I went, <laughs> I didn't think like, hey, I really want to be a pastor. So I should go to school and get like, go to pastor school and get. Right. Thing. Get your MDiv. Nope. That's uh, just too much time and money. Uh, I did uh, help plant a church a number of years ago, like 1998, 1999. And mm. once it was up and running, it became to some degree necessary that like I have some sort of paperwork, <laughs> some sort of paperwork. Like, what are you doing here? I was like, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. Like, can we see your documentation? I don't have any. So uh, I had to That's go funny. like kind of backfill that with, with some training. Yeah. Um, but I went to St. Mary's College in Moraga, California. I majored in English lit and philosophy. And that's okay. my actual only formal training is that. I see that. I see yes. that. Yeah. I'm making the rest of it up as I go along and, and finding my it. training mostly on YouTube, I guess. Or well, well, the terminology these days seems to be like, I'm a public theologian or I'm a public academic. If I was going to pick a term, and I'm, I, this is going to sound so cheesy, I asked so Jen Hampmaker is, is a friend and a hero. And I asked Jen, like, like if you had a phrase, if you had a word, like what summarizes actually what you do? Yeah. Functionally, like the identity, not like that what you do is who you are and all that kind of stuff, but like functionally, like, what are you up to? Who are you? She said, I, I would, I would say I was, I, I was a pastor. Yeah. And I thought, I thought about that for a long time. Uh, I've been a pastor, like an actual pastor, like in a church. And so I think that's part of why I find some distance. I honestly, if I was going to pick a term, I'm an artist. Yeah. Seth Godin says, uh, has written that um, art is anything you create that, that, that uh, forges a connection between people. Everything I do is intentionally driven that way. So I like creating things. Like I yeah. loved making music for a lot of years. I like podcasting and I like editing the podcast. I like writing books. I like editing. I like, I like all yeah. the creative stuff. But I'm rarely, if ever, creating just because like it's in me. Like that thing with like it's in me, and if I don't make it, like I'm a like I never really feel that way. I'm almost always creating. Really? Yeah, I'm I'm almost always creating because uh, there is a desired connection I want to forge between myself and people, or I'll see gaps in culture and I'll want to try to create language that fills that space. It's pretty functional in that in that way. Like I'm not not inspired. I'm definitely inspired, but like I'm rarely like sitting in the dark thinking like I've got to get a, get up and just go write some words because then I'll feel better. Like no, really, I don't. Like no, if I if I'm sitting in the dark and I want to go no, if I'm in if I'm in the dark brooding, uh, <laughs> I might like I don't I don't go to creating work uh, that will end up public. I'll maybe like play a song or something like that, but like. If I'm in the dark brooding, like I, my, my therapeutic stuff is not art. My therapeutic stuff is like therapy. I'll be, I'll be in therapy in about two and a half hours. Actually, I'm going to therapy later this afternoon, uh, is actual therapy uh, is like exercise. Um, like I, that's the stuff that's therapeutic. Art making is, a, is a job. Like it's, it's my work. What I do because I want to make an impact on the world. Yeah. What do you think it is within you that wants to make an impact on the world? Like why bother with the world? Um, that's a great question. So the hyper-spiritual answer, which I actually really do believe, is that part of the way the love of God shows up in the world is in the chests of people who are available to it. Mm. So um, when I have, it's inexplicable at times, to be honest with you, to look around and be like, why do I give a rat's ass? 
Right. I don't have a reason to, not really. Yeah. And there have been many, many situations where it's like, I don't really benefit from giving myself away to this <sighs> thing or to that thing that right. it's in me to do. And mm -hmm. I'm, I've learned to recognize that like, that's probably divine intention and divine will, like waking up in my own heart and saying, hey, let's go take care of that person or let's go give ourselves away. Let's go provide something over there. So I, I think I care because God cares. That's the, that's the cheesy, like hyper-spiritual, damn near Hallmark Cardish kind of answer. But it, I think actually is true. It's like, I think I care because God cares through me. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's almost a country song. It's really close to a country song. Um <laughs> I think that's I think but I, I do think it's true. I think I care because because the love of God exists and lives in me uh, and expresses itself themselves through me in that way. That's the most fundamental truth. The other the other part of it is like I I I, I like people. I'm an Enneagram 4, I'm a maximizer, I'm a connectedness person like Mm -hmm. My personality is such that I thrive. I'm happier if I'm connected to other people. And so I, I care and I create in order to create, yes, in order to make an impact on the world, but also so that I can feel connected with my world. Mm. Uh, otherwise, I'm that like lonely kid, which I've definitely lived there. Where like, ah, no one understands me. No one gets, <laughs> I'm the only person with these feelings. I'm alone in my chaos and sadness. <laughs> Uh, and I don't want to feel that way. So art making is also part of how, whether it's in books or music or podcasts or blogs or whatever, like it's a way for me to feel connected to my world. So I, that's, that's the twofold answer is uh, it very much ends up being like, you know, uh, you know, you know, love, uh, love people as you love yourself type of thing. Like I, I create to connect with the world because I think the love of God exists in me and I want to feel connected and at home. That's why I do what I do. Mm, that's good. I know a number of Enneagram fours and they are all artists. And like, and as I'm exploring the Enneagram, I'm an eight. So I like to stir shit. Um, you know, like as I explore it, it's just really interesting to start to connect all of the people that I know and, and what their number is and how they exist and see the world. Yes. Um, so that's really interesting. Yes. Um, right. So I do want to talk about your book. So you've written cool. five books and your upcoming book is called. It is what you make of it. It's the name of the book. And it is a, it's a collection of stories from the last uh, 25 years of my life and vocation around the idea of uh, well, around the reality that nothing, almost nothing simply is what it is that our circumstances are, are results of choices that other people and sometimes we ourselves have made and that mm -hmm. moving forward begins ultimately with me recognizing that the, the, the stuff I'm in the moment I'm in is like laden with opportunity and potential that everything is ultimately opportunity and potential. And it's a matter of will and power, time and planning to move forward that I'm never really stuck, stuck, mm -hmm. very rarely stuck, stuck. Um, there are places and times when we are stuck in, in actuality, but for the most part, like whether we move ahead, whether we, whether you know, what happens next is a decision we get to make as opposed to just some crap that happens to us. Yeah, you had written something today, and I want to read it. You said, I realize that shifting from it is what it is to it is what you make of it is a long process and can be a bit daunting. 
more so when the is we have to work with our circumstances and opportunities is really sideways. So how long has this book been in you? Like, what has the process been like from, you know, just what you've experienced to actualization? The book's been in me, like the seed of the book was actually planted when I was a freshman or sophomore in high school, wow. which is like before roads and crap. So, uh, so I'm 47. Uh, yeah, I'm 44 next week. So there yeah. you go. So you, there were roads when you were born. Right. <laughs> I, so I was actually, the central story to the book actually is where the book started is I was in speech class. I think it was a sophomore and I was in trouble for talking in speech class, which is the thing. Like, boy, if you kind of, if you're going to get we have podcasts, yeah, Shocker. look at it. Like I never stopped. Right. <laughs> is it trouble or is it a job? And uh, so Mr. Ross um, stopped class and said, Mr. McRoberts, and I've heard the tone, the whole thing before. And I get up and I grab my bag. And as I'm on my way to the door, he stops me and he says, nope, would you come here for a second? And, I, and he, he asked me to put, his, put my bag down next to his desk. And then he walks over to this prop closet of sorts. I guess it was a prop closet. It was a, he would go in there to get like, the, like a podium or something to hold or a microphone and, you know, in speech, teaching us to do you know, public speaking. And he, and he drags out of this closet this large inflated cactus, like about chest high on me, right? Okay. <laughs> and he drags out and he sets, this, he sets this inflated cactus right next to me. And then he sits, he walks out and he sits down in my seat in the class. He says, okay, Mr. McRoberts, you'd like to entertain very clearly. The floor is yours for five minutes. Go ahead. <laughs> Which is like such a great punk move, right? From a teacher. Right. Because now, right. it, now I'm not stealing someone else's moment. I have to create one of my own. And so I freeze. I could completely freeze, which is exactly what he would have expected. I freeze. And I figure, you know, at this point in the story, it's like, well, this is like, that's some sort of punishment. You could just stand there and look like an idiot for five minutes. But then what happened was, this is the actual seat of the book. Um, The kid behind him, who was the kid I was joking around with mouthing off to, said, oh, come on, man. Like, just pretend like you're in the desert. It's just a cactus. To which Mr. Ross says, no. It's not. And look me square in the face and he says, it is what you make of it. And it took me a minute to let that settle in. And then for the next like two and a half minutes or whatever I had left, it was an alien. It was a long lost friend. It was a horse. It was a frozen water spigot. It was like, and I just in, started inventing because ultimately like, it wasn't a cactus. It's, it, in, in no way, shape or form is it actually a cactus. It was the image of a cactus. But mm-hmm. it's a piece of plastic filled with air with sand in the bottom of it if it's anything. Right. Uh, and so whatever happened with it was mine. So that propels itself forward into, you know, years later, is it, is, you know, is it a music career? I don't know. What are you going to do with it? Like you have a talent, like you can mm-hmm. play some songs, but are they songs? Not until you make them songs. Is it a record? Not until you make it a record. Is it a music career? Not until you've actually traveled and done the thing. Is it a church? Right. It sort of depends on how like you shape it. Like it's all dependent upon like the making, the shaping, and the naming of the people who are at the helm. And then mm-hmm. similarly, some of the circumstances aren't so great and opportune. So like when I lose my father to suicide in my early twenties, like what the hell do you do with that? Is that just a dead end? Right. Or does that then become this seed of compassion and sympathy? Is a plant a seed of compassion and sympathy with which I enter into wealthy white spaces and say, hey, your culture, our culture is toxic and steps all over other people's cultures. And mm-hmm. that's going to be problematic long term. And at the same time, I don't think you understand how 
much it costs you to be you the way you're trying to be you in it. Mm. So here's a story about my dad. And that like, oh, so what do I do with the stuff that I'm handed? Whether it's the talents, the opportunities, and the gifts, or whether it's the actual, like the darkness and the brokenness and the shards of things. The question of, of tomorrow is almost always, what are you going to do with that? Rather opposed, As opposed to the question of like, why are things the way they are? It's a fine question to ask for a while. But eventually, if I'm going to have it tomorrow, the question Ooh. ends up having to be, so what do I yeah. do with it now? That's the book and it started when I was a freshman or a sophomore. You talked about your father's suicide, but then you talked about the fact that that led you, it sounds like, on a journey of exploring what white culture does to people and the toxicity of it. I'm kind of curious about that part of your journey. Yeah, please. So both my parents grew up in, in relative forms of poverty. No one on, my, on either side of the family had gone to college before I had and one of my cousins. So there wasn't uh, like, there wasn't like a, that type of upward mobility on either side of our families. Um, alcoholism uh, on both sides of the family ended multiple lives. Um, like I, I've never, I don't know any of the men on my mom's side beyond um, her. Like I never met her grandfather. Okay. I've never met any of the men on my, my father's side of the family ever. Because mm -hmm. um, they either worked or drank themselves to death. Yeah. Both sides. Um, so poverty, workaholism, alcoholism, and <laughs> these people find each other because that's how life works. And mm -hmm. both of them in this very self-made person thing where my dad like left, didn't finish high school, left the house, abused the whole nine, um, and went joined the Navy ahead of being 18 somehow because that used to, be able to, used to be able to do that, I guess. Got out and then forged his way through, you know, the like a blue collar right on the border of white collar work world. My mom, same basic story in terms of like abuse and alcoholism and like leaves early, bounces like right after high school and drives from Albuquerque, New Mexico to San Francisco, California. Mm -hmm. And her 1950 something blue uh, like baby blue Mustang, which I found out she had. I was like, where is that car and why don't I have it? She's like, I sold it for $500 and I'll never let oh. it go. 500 bucks, mother. Mm, so right. uh, they end up in the airline industry together, uh, work their way up. The classic, that classic American thing, like make something of yourself, make something of yourself. And there are limits to this, obviously. Um, and when their poverty from, from both of their backgrounds and the work that it took to get to where they were from their poverty, and this is what work does, is it, it shaped their souls very differently. So my mother is this deeply, 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 deeply generous, overly at times, dangerously, wildly generous, mm -hmm. gracious, caring person. And my father was not uncaring, but he was very, very reserved. So my father was the person who, like my mom was the person who was like, I have, I have worked for five apples and I was given the opportunity to work for five apples. So I should probably give these five apples away because I can probably do that again. Hmm. My father was the person who was like, I work for five apples and you better get the hell away from my five apples because I earned these. And if you take one, then I will only have four and I don't know where the next one's coming from. Yeah. I recognize this now, but like that tension in my household of like being thankful for what I've got, but also being scared to death that it's going to be taken away from me. Uh, I carried that into adulthood and it was galvanized as a tension in me at the point of my father's suicide that like, mm -hmm. I, I, I do want both things. 
And then because of my, per- my particular career at the time, traveling, playing music, telling stories, predominantly in, like, in white spaces in, in evangelical America, which are predominantly wealthy-ish white spaces, um, I saw this tension. I saw this oftentimes deeply, deeply generous and at times very, very thankful uh, mm-hmm. church community that was also gripped with terror the exact same time that what it had, what they had was going to be taken away. Oh. It was exactly the same thing. Yeah. They were deeply generous. Like would have these incredible drives. Church down the road, it's a perfect example. International Justice, Justice Mission like 10 or so years ago in town, they bring them in. They're, I think they're like, this church is large for areas. It's like 1,700 people, 2,000 people go to this church. On mm-hmm. a Sunday morning, they just take an offering and $75,000 leaves in the pockets of the, of the folks from IGM. Now, we can do all the things we want to do in terms of like short-term missions and just giving money and all this kind of crap. People are like, whatever. You don't have $75,000, so shut up. But like, So they give this money, but at the same time, they were also in the grips of this really, really terrifying conversation about losing their property and like, so they were like in this, like you have this multi-million dollar property, you're giving away $75,000 on a Sunday, but you're also scared to death about losing what you have like over and over and over again. And what I saw was the opportunity as a songwriter and as an advocate to introduce a story that like pointed right at that tension and said, let's talk about, let's talk about what actual generosity looks like. Let's talk about like formative generosity. Like what is it, what's it look like to be generous in a way that doesn't just make an impact on the world, but actually changes who you are as a person. Um, that was the beginning of me like waking up to that part of my work that I, I don't want to just use the power of, uh, wealthy white folks like me to make an impact on the lives of folks who are neither wealthy nor white. I do want wealthy white folks like myself to make an impact in the world, but to do so in a way in which they are formed, shaped, and like, refined in the process. One of the things you mentioned, tension, that's something that I really sense in your work and in your writing and something that uh, I'm really drawn to is it just holding this tension between the reality and the, the I, I don't know if horror is the right word, but there's a horror that exists in the world, right? Yeah. And hope, like this tension between that. And I see you actively contending for humanity, and for connecting people to our shared humanity. You had written something a while ago, and you said, regardless of how well-informed or cleverly articulated a disdain for other people might be, over time, it will disfigure my own soul. And that really spoke to me, particularly in this time for myself as somebody who is constantly pressing into and contending for justice, but also really hopeful and desiring of connecting people with our shared humanity mm-hmm. and kind of vacillating between wanting to absolutely burn things to the ground and then wanting to embrace people and bring them into my home and, and put them around my table and cook for mm-hmm. them. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on that and that aspect of your work. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the, I find it in myself, right? Like I'm, Insofar as I am, this is all, almost everything I do is to some degree, some form of uh, psychotherapeutic projection. Uh, I do what I want to see in the world, uh, as a good artist theoretically does. So I find in myself, like I end up being my own worst enemy. Like I'm the person who does myself the most harm. 
And because that's yeah. true, there are parts of there are things about me that I honest if I'm if I'm honest about it, I really disdain. I don't like that about me. Like I don't I don't like some of the fears that I carry. I hate them. In fact, and I know mm-hmm. that they're destructive of my own soul. I know that they're destructive of my relationships. I know that there are people who would like to be much closer to me that like don't feel like they can because they feel untrusted, and they are because I'm scared to death that they're going to hurt me, which they probably will. And all right. like. Like, I hate that about myself. Yeah. Uh, but I hate that about myself because I want better. So in other words, I can hate something about myself and then allow that to be definitive of how I see myself. Like, I am a fearful person and I will mm-hmm. never have intimate relationships. I can do that. Mm-hmm. Or I can say, I have fear in me that keeps me from having intimate relationships and I would like to kill that thing so that I can flourish. Mm-hmm. So now I'm just projecting that crap all over the place. We're like, yeah. There's all, there's all kinds of stuff about you and your culture that's like, that's awful. And your tendencies to white supremacy are awful. And your misogyny in the way you're blind to the way you talk about women is just gross. And not only do I want better for the women around you, not only do I want better for the people of color around you, like, God, I wish you were a better person because you'd be happier as a person in a culture if you weren't such a prick. Mm. Uh, yeah. So it's the same, same. I'm, all, I'm, I mean it when I say this. Like I'm, I'm mostly certain that a great majority of the stuff I do, the better work that I do, is some is on some level like a projection of my own psychotherapeutic process. Like I'm, I'm working my stuff out, and I'm going to project the better part of it uh, on. Absolutely. The world. I'm, I'm super fine with that because it just right. means I've got to be really responsible to that. I can't just like talk crap and hope it works out. Like you better mean that cuz like it's true oh. about you, son. Yeah, that is good. How do you connect with people? Like do you experience in your own life have you stepped into a space of human connection and community with other people? Cuz for me, I can say that like like this is coming from sort of my own process, intentionally leaving the institutional church about eight years ago, and then stepping into community, but also spending an amount of time feeling like I was a bit lost at sea in terms of connecting and finding community that wasn't what is now being coined as really like white evangelicalism. I'd love to talk about that a bit, if that's something that's kind of on your mind or something that you've gone through. Yeah. Like, I think what you're asking is like, like, where do I feel? I think like you're asking like, where do I feel? Do I feel home? And like, where do I feel a sense of connection with people? Yes. That is what I'm asking. Yeah. Like I, I still, I don't identify as an evangelical. Right. Identify. I certainly identify with evangelical. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to have what I had and be who I was. Like it would have been easier for me to be like, oh yeah, I don't associate with them or that's not who I, who I, you know, that's not who I hang with but it totally is like they're, they're white Western predominantly straight, predominantly male yeah. evangelical. Mm-hmm. And I actually do feel uh, not just an affinity, but like a home among them and not because like, I like your culture, but it's sort of like you grew up in your own household and you're like, you come home for Christmas and you're like, I definitely feel home here. And also it smells like cheese. Um, can we talk about that? Has it always smelled this way in here? Uh, why does it smell like cheese? Can we deal with that? You know what I'm saying? Like at some point you're like, it's still home, but you you get old enough and you have enough distance to uh, like notice the things that are like, oh, that's not right. 
Mm-hmm. So I still feel home here. It's just I'm an older brother and a father. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel more invited, capable, responsible to like moving the furniture around and saying like, I know that this is the way it's always been. But if this is my house and if I belong here, then we're not going to keep this in the living room anymore. And we'll have a conversation about it. But I think we're wrong. We keep this here. What does the... um redecorating of the house look like? Like what are the things that you really feel passionately about and want to see change and work and endeavor to change? This will be an unpopular statement. Uh, Like honestly transformative uh, justice work. In other words, if the thing you're going to do as a church body or as a person isn't transformative and formative for you, uh, then don't do it. As effective as it might be uh, among the people you are set out to serve, um, if it doesn't change you in the process, don't. Because we've done uh, we've done enough of that. Mm-hmm. Like we've done enough of the work that has been like really effective in certain ways by a certain metric, but we are not better now than we were like as a culture as white as white Christian men. Uh, we are not better now than we were 25 or 30 years ago when many of these just initiatives, justice initiatives took root and started taking. We're not better. 79% of us still voted for Donald Trump and led, you know, and, and people who looked just like us, led by people just like us, led an actual like revolt at the Capitol. Like we're not, we're not healthier. Um, people are more scared of us now than than they used to be. People are more fed up with us now. Like we're not better. We don't have better relationships. We have not changed enough. So we can look around and say, yeah, it used to be the case that uh, 50% of the world lived in extreme poverty. And now it's something more like, you know, somewhere between 25 and 32%. We'll see what happens after the COVID era. And we made this massive impact on global poverty. Yeah, but you're not healthier. Um, and so you made an impact. You had, you had a, you, you did a really great job and you're still sick. So whatever you do now, you know, you can be effective. So let's decide to do things that are actually going to change you in the process. That's the stuff I'm passionate about. That's the stuff that like, that actually drives me. It's like, I, I want to see people like me doing work that yes, makes an impact in the world, but also changes them in the process. So what does that look like? Can you talk about that more? Like, how does that actually manifest? Um, some of it has to do with, uh, more like attention paying. So this will be wild. Um, so with regards to the justice initiatives and, and the work of it, it looks like the COVID era, uh, where like, you just can't do some of the stuff you're doing before. So if you, what you were banking on in order to make the impact in the world is a really, really great rock show. And like, then like a cool 10 to 12 minute story about, poor kids and uh and then like the the impact moment if that's what you were banking on in terms of like your long-term cultural impact that was just taken away from you for the last year and probably the next two to three years ahead of you Mm -hmm. so how do you reinvent like how do you create a culture that doesn't need a moment like that how do you create a culture that doesn't need the the like the the knee-jerk moment in order to decide like yeah i do want to spend forty dollars a month that I would otherwise spend on food I shouldn't be eating or like drinks I don't need to rescue 
you know, kids out of poverty. Because that impulse is great to be like, hey, I, I do spend too much money on crap that I don't need and I, right. I should reallocate this. Sure. What's it look like to develop a culture that doesn't need that moment in order to get there, but actually just lives in that space? And it looks to some degree like we have some of this stuff taken away and all of our, in, all of our energy and all a lot of our energy and uh, creativity has to be reallocated to reinvention. I don't know. Like, what is it? What's an agency like World Vision and Compassion do going forward with regards to like child sponsorship? And I don't know. Mm-hmm. What I know is those people really do freaking care, and they're going to work their tail off to create a culture that's different and create systems that are different. And I think they will be truly transformative. That's what I'm hoping. Like, I can't, I can't, and I won't create systems to go get you know. What compassion was it like 2.6 million kids rescued out of poverty? Right. Like that's amazing. Like mm-hmm. I couldn't create a system like that and I can't reinvent it, but they can. Mm-hmm. And I think they will because they want to. So it takes this actually. It takes having things taken away mm-hmm. uh, to have to reinvent and create more transformative cultures. Yeah. Would you call yourself a peacemaker? I would like to. Uh, I get caught in the middle, I think. Like I like the idea of being, I probably am. I don't really know. Um, I would like to be a crap disturber. That sounds cooler. Uh, I think I'm probably a peacemaker, but but I don't. Um, I don't really know. Um, I'd just like you, to say, say that I think you can be a peacemaker and a crap disturber. I think they go okay, hand good. in hand. Not a peacekeeper, amen amen. right? But a no. peacemaker. Well, I ask because you know. Again, I feel like in the reading of your work, there you again. It, it's very clear that you hold this thoughtfulness in that tension between burning it all down and contending for humanity. And so we're in this season right now, like you said, politically speaking, with this insurrection, with mass protests and all of these things. How do you feel about the state of the world right now? And and what do you think about the fact that like with COVID, we've been inside on our screens, relating to one another through the internet. And I will say, like, there has been some really beautiful connection through that for myself, for a lot of other people. But there's also been a lot of problematic stuff coming as well. So, like, how, what do you yes. think about all of that? I'm really hopeful. Uh, actually, I'm really, really, really hopeful because I think some of it has to do with like the passing of the old guard. And in as the old guard passes, and as as old systems, uh, specifically in religious contexts, uh, work less, I just I still hear and feel and smell and see like that still burning desire to connect with one another, to connect with God. Like I still like it's still there. Which is to say, like the thing that's most fundamental about religion is still abundantly true, Mm. even if the metrics we've used to measure all of that no longer apply because our systems don't lean to them. I mean, this is all Derridaian in some sense that would, you know, he basically, you know, the idea that like you, you know, the values you have about things are really actually predicated on the institutions that you design them around. Right. So there really is no value. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not unlike that. Uh, yeah. And so far as like, you know, how healthy is the religious state of America? Uh, well, if, if the way you measure that is, you know, by its relationship to the institutions we built, then not very healthy, but, if you measure that by like the uh, by a vitality that is sick of its institutions and that that illness actually comes from a desire for something more true, more beautiful, then we're great. 
And I think that's what I'm seeing. I think we're in a really good place where folks are like, hey, the reason this sucks is because there's something more true. I don't hate this just to hate it. I hate this because it's in the way of something better. I'm really hopeful because I think there is a lot of burn it down. Great. Fine. Burn it down. And (laughs) I'm going to help build it. And I won't build it the same. I'll help you burn it down. I will. And then I'm going to stick around. And I'm gonna change my damn clothes and get to work again. I, that's and I just feel that hope in all other all kinds of other places. One of the stories oh. um, from the from the from the next book is a little bit like that. Is um, there is a, a trail uh, right over by my house, which is which is where I was just now. It runs to the uh, a park near my house, and so there's like a like a series of parks and lakes, and in between those lakes are these little creeks, and the trail kind of weaves around the lakes and kind of goes over through the creeks. There's a, a point in the trail where when when it rains more you can't really clear the trail so you either end up at that point like turning back around and going back which can suck because it's a little bit deep or slogging through and getting your feet wet so this is a few years ago i'm jogging and I, i'm coming up to that point and i know because it's been raining that i'm gonna have to make that choice but i get there and there's a bridge someone built a bridge and this is like half a mile into this like wooded area of this park so it's like a bit of a thing to have carried like wood and nails. It's not, it's like yeah. a bridge bridge, like a like a person wow. crossing. Uh, and I was like, that's amazing, like super inspired. So I run home and I tell my wife, I'm like, someone built a bridge. And a couple of days later we go out. And it's like literally, you know those moments in the in like horror films where really, like, you know there's a dead body, but then when you bring your friends there, the dead body's gone. Yeah. Like this was that <laughs> moment where it was like she was like, Where's the bridge? I'm like, I swear to God, there was a bridge here. I'm not telling. So she's like, Where's the bridge? So we're, as we get closer, we notice that there are shards all over the place. Um, that someone, just like someone had taken the time to build a bridge, someone else, I'm assuming, had torn it down. And not just like like torn it down. Like it was like shredded. It was all over the place. The pieces of wood, wow. nails. And I was like, that's really sad. Like yeah. my wife said the thing that you say is like, why, why would you do that? Mm-hmm. Like why do people do that? I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, a week later, I'm jogging back through there. And as I come up on that spot, there is another bridge. Uh, and as I get closer, what I notice is that bridge is like, it's a, there's a lot of new wood, but then some of the pieces are made up of these old pit bits from the first bridge. As if to say like this person who made it, I'm assuming is the person who fixed it. As if to say like, I saw what you did and I saw you tore it down and I don't know why you did. Uh, but I care more about what I'm making than you care about tearing it down. And so feel free to tear it down. Mm. Uh, but I'm going to build it again and I'll use whatever you leave that's usable. And if it's not usable, I'll go get new stuff. So I'll make something old new, which like is a great ending, but it's not the end. So uh, I think it was the following day uh, as I'm going back through there, it's gone again. <laughs> and this time, Instead of being able to tear it down, because it was built very differently, uh, whoever this was, like, dragged the bridge, like, way up the creek, and it was, it had, like, stopped the water, and so it, was, it stopped the creek, so the creek had, had to work its way around it, so now it's this big, sloggy mess, and so now, like, the whole area is, like, soppy, disgusting, and it's worse. Wow. And this is the point in which, like, I had to make, like, my own decision about like okay so this is a really interesting story that i'm bearing witness to here <laughs> of these two forces right at hand uh, uh is it my turn 
like, do I, like, I, can't, I don't have the skills to build a bridge. I'm not a carpenter. I'm not that kind of technical, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I can do something about this. And so I slogged my way up the creek. It took me probably like an hour and a half to drag this thing back down. It was heavy as hell. It was so heavy. Uh, and I got it back to kind of where it's supposed to be and I propped it back up. And um, that thing is still, that thing is still there. And there's a point at which like this cycle of uh, things being torn down for whatever reason and then like the rebuilding process, yeah. um, there is, it's all the same process. In other words, um, it's, it's not really two forces. This is just what it looks like to be human. Mm. And I have to decide to get all the way in, like at the expense of being in this kind of weird chaotic process. Like, I don't know why, I don't know why people tear things down. I don't. Right. Sometimes they're just being assholes, mm -hmm. but sometimes they're tearing it down. Cause it's like, Hey, like I was abused in that building. It should never freaking stand again. And I don't get to know that story. Mm. What I get to do is I get to enter in as deep as I possibly can to get as muddy as it takes me to get and get in on the process and do what I can and play my part and just kind of hope that the long term of the process is good. I don't get to decide why people tear things down. I don't. Um, I don't get to even really decide why people build things. I do want to be in on the process because that's what it looks like to be a human being. So I'll just make the decision to, and here's the book, uh, like I'll see what's in front of me and make what I can of it and then hope that the rest of it gets filled out by grace and goodness. That's beautiful. I was going to ask if you are a hopeful person or if you have hope and you had already answered that earlier saying that you really do hope. Yes. Why? Like, why do you hope? What is it? Because um, it sucks not to. Like I've been in seasons where it's like I just didn't expect good things. Um, I, I didn't expect good things from God or from myself or I didn't. And it was worse. Like, the, like despair sucks. Mm -hmm. uh, like despair sucks. So there's that great, <laughs> it's a great moment in, in, uh, in, uh, Dark Knight Rises. It's a Batman reference. And I mm -hmm. apologize to all your guests for whom it's like the hell. <laughs> um, but, um, where uh, Bruce Wayne, Batman, has been beaten down and Bane, the bad guy, has taken him off into wherever he's taken him off to and um, and he's showing him the, the prison he's in. And there is a way out that's just really, really hard. And, so, and he's like, and he explains that the reason they put this hole up there that makes it look like you can claw out is because there's, there's no despair without hope. And that's his whole thing. Mm. Bane's whole thing is like the purpose of hope is to really deepen like the darkness of despair, but ultimately like all there is is despair. And he's not entirely wrong up to a point. Um, the the other side to that is, <laughs> which I've gotten to as well. It's like I just I am a naturally hopeful person, and in my natural hope, I wrote this yesterday too uh, that there is this really thin line, uh, and it's not thin line. There's a line between like hope and foolishness. Uh, and I don't, I, I don't see that line really well if I'm moving too fast. So, uh, I hope is really, really, really good. It's a great leader. Uh, it's a terrible play caller. So, uh, I want to be led by hope, but I want my reason and I want a little bit of pain to help guide my decision making. So I want hope to drive me and it always has. But this is the point at which like I'm just I'm driven by it and like good things will happen and good things will happen and good things will happen. And then I end up like wounded and injured and despising myself and other people. 
and like these little pains and injuries and scars are like, hey, we're we're down with the whole, the hope thing. We like that's cool. Just know that like when you hit things at that speed, it hurts like hell. So keep moving in that direction. Just slow down a little bit enough to see the freaking trees, <laughs> um, so that we don't end up as hurt. So like despair is worse. It's just like I would rather like the pain of uh, of the pain of not moving. Like the like the soreness and the stiffness that comes from not being active and not moving is worse than the pain of getting hurt along the way, because uh, it's not counterbalanced by the thrill of the tiny little victories. I would rather be driven by hope, get hurt, and get wiser than not move and get stiff and just end up feeling older with time. That sucks. Yeah. So what gives you hope? Um, I like um. I like really small stories. Like I, w- one of my, the last three or four years, I've spent a lot more time coaching, uh, coaching pastors and artists and ministers and entrepreneurs. And I've really liked these really small stories because they provide like really intricate details about how things get better. That stuff, like that stuff feeds my actual hope. Like the big, this is what I mean by like the slowing down and paying attention thing Yeah, is like the hope of, so, you know, it's a really cool, hopeful, not hope, not cool. It's a really easy, hopeful thing, but like, we are the generation that will see and bring about the end of global poverty. And you're like, uh, and then you come to the end of that year and you're like, it's worse. <laughs> it's like, wait, what happened? Um, I, uh, I like that kind of thrill, but like the, st- but it doesn't really drive me anymore. Mm-hmm. Like it's like one, you're not, you're not, the gener- you're not the generation that's going to see it. Right. So it's not really true. Um, it, but like, it just feel it's too distant. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like this big, this big it's like, it's, it's the way the hell over there. It doesn't feel close to my own life and it doesn't look like, it does not look like my own life. Mm-hmm. Cause when I look at the big swaths of massive movements in my life, like nothing is that victorious, mm-hmm. but when I listen to stories about someone who's like, you know, I was $16,000 in debt, which doesn't sound like a lot of money, but it would have had me trapped in a corner and I couldn't blah, 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 et cetera. And then this, and I finally asked, you know, four or five friends if they would come alongside and they did and like these little bitty stories of folks, like, like that stuff actually gives me hope where I get to see like on the granular level, like I had to work through forgiveness with this friend and we've been fighting for like, we haven't been fighting. We've been in tension for like seven years. And like, we finally sat down and it's like a, two-hour conversation and we realize that's not me i'm like those little stories give me hope because they actually look like my life I'm like oh i recognize that i recognize looking at sixteen thousand dollars of debt and being like shit i don't know what to do yeah i recognize feeling that tension with a friend and be like i do need that two-hour conversation that i really don't want to have like those stories give me hope like feed the hope in me because they look like my life and they look like the kinds of tensions and victories that action that actually i can actually have hmm. Very cool. So of your books, I'm just curious, what's your favorite book that you've written? Do you have one? Um, this is my own I curiosity. really like, no. I, so uh, they're all so special in right? unique ways. All my children. I love. <laughs> all my children. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's not true. No, it it's is not, not true. true. It's not true. Um, I, I really like the, um, I think this is actually how it works in my psychology. So the two most successful books are the books that I did with Scott Erickson, yeah. uh, Prayer and Maybe. So. I have one. And I really like 
I like those books mm-hmm. and I, um, they're like, they're the books. If someone like front facing was to be like, do you have a book of yours? I'd be like, Oh, here's prayer 40 days of practice. And mm-hmm. they'd be like, it's interesting and cool. But in terms of like my, my, the, my favorite book that I've written, it's actually the one that's sold by far the least, not even close is a book called title pending, which is just a garbage title. It's part, it's part of why it didn't sell because people are like, what does it even mean? Did you not finish it? I'm like, no, it's finished. It's, it's a joke. You titled it a joke. I know I'm a jackass, but here's the joke. <laughs> Uh, I love title pending because, uh, because it's like, I just, I like, you can tell I like storytelling. Yeah. And so it's like, it's similar to this, this book, which is like, I think will end up being my favorite. I like title pending because I really liked writing the stories. And once it, once it was out, um, I really liked seeing people regurgitate pieces of those stories back to me, even in these small chunks. So I would go and like do these talks about creativity mm-hmm. which is what the book was about it was about like create you know how to apply creative thinking to relationships and work etc and um and so watching people regurgitate these, inf- these these little bits of information on these little little stories felt really really good because it wasn't quirky it wasn't sticky it was just like i'm going to tell some stories mm-hmm. and i hope they resonate with you because that that's what i mostly do i think the next this next book may, uh, uh it is what you make it will probably end up being my favorite i'm like I'm still like really really close to it. Still, so, uh, so I'm still thinking about things I could have done better. Oh, I hate um, that. Yeah, I'm I'm right on the edge of being over it. And at the point in which like I think I turned in like a, a thing and like uh, they said, oh uh, tomorrow I have to turn a thing tomorrow like final edits to yep. this little section and then I'm done done and then my brain will be like okay we're all finished we're all finished thinking about how to make it better because you can't right. so lock that door. I think it'll be I think this will end up being my favorite. But title pending is my my favorite. Okay. Of the books I've written. That's really cool. Before we finish up here, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Um, I not really. I I did want to say, and I'm not doing this just to do it. Like, I'm really glad you're doing what you're doing. Like, I like. There's this joke going around now. Somebody, it was like somebody's Twitter bio was like, I, she said, "Oh no, she threatened." Like she tweeted, she's a pretty popular person on Twitter. She tweeted, she goes, I think I'm going to change my Twitter bio to say I don't have a podcast, <laughs> which is like a whole joke, right? right. Like, oh it's my funny. gosh, all it's the podcasts hate, like, right? Everybody's got a podcast and it's, and, and folks are talking about it like it's a problem. And I just actually don't. I think right. it's great. I think it's, I think it's awesome. Uh, I think it's more than awesome uh, because I think it's a, I think podcasting is still like like barely, barely in its infancy mm-hmm. as an art form. Right. Uh, I mean, social, for, I mean, for God's sake, I mean, Facebook is like, what, 17 years old? Like it's 17. It's a freaking teenager. That's it. Right. It feels so like it's old. been here forever. Right. <laughs> right. It feels as right. It feels like it's been forever. But Facebook is like, it's 17 years old. The way it is, the way it exists now, right. you know, Twitter's younger. It's Snapchat's like barely born. Like, I mean, like oh, that's so podcasting is, is it, I think nowhere near what it can and will be. Right. So I really like seeing one. I like what podcasting does with regards to storytelling and and connection. Yes. Again, my whole thing is like people connecting with people and people connecting with God. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's what I, that's what I'm about. Exactly. I love what podcasting. I love what podcasting does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're like right at the cusp of the beginning of vision for what the thing can be, mm-hmm. and the way we really get there. Healthily is not if you have these massive monoliths where just the pros with massive budgets get to do the thing, 
but we're like folks like you and I are like, I've got, I've got four hundred dollars worth of gear, and that's it. And I'm just gonna bust my ass and make this as good as I could possibly make it, and that's gonna force my limitations will force creativity. Yes, uh, I'll end up have and and you and I both know this like. Like my guest list, I I and I decided this last this 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 season was like I, I could spend a bunch of time and energy like trying to chase down like this guest and that guest and like oh I've got to get Van Jones like I'd love to freaking have Van Jones like mm-hmm. it's, he's like my ideal guest like I want to talk to Van Jones uh, but like you know a couple of my guests recently are like you know people have like never been on a podcast before yep. and their stories are amazing right like highlighting. Yes like highlighting what's happening on the granular level. This is what human life looks like. Cause that's the thing we're trying to get to all the time. We talk to celebrities, not because we want to know what it's like to be a celebrity, but because we want to want, we want to know what it's like to be human mm-hmm. and they provide a broad doorway into that story. So I love that podcasts like, like, like yours and mine, like I spend time with people mm-hmm. and then lift that up to like whoever the hell will listen. And right. that now I've sort of like, I've kind of blessed and sanctified this like otherwise mundane everyday thing. Mm-hmm. And like, here's a conversation I have with someone who runs a coffee shop. Um, that's what they do. Right. And they're, you know, local coffee shop owners. And now it's in a, po- and not that like my podcast is a thing, but like now I've put this like forever and ever and ever online and it will mm-hmm. live. Like I've, there's this sanctification, beautification thing that I, I just love that with podcasts. So I'm all that to say, I'm really glad you're doing what you're doing. Uh, I think you're good at what you do. And uh, don't give in to the thing. It's like, oh, everyone's got a podcast. And you'd be like, yeah, no. it's fine. But I got mine and have you heard it? Yeah, no, it's funny because it, there was all this podcast hate on Twitter a few weeks ago. And I was like, hey, you know what? Uh-uh, I'm not taking part in that. I don't know if you no, know my no. story. I started a podcast called Speaking of Racism a few years ago. Hmm. And literally my thing is, I had not listened to podcasts. I decided I was going to start a podcast in true eight form. An hour later, I downloaded an app and I started talking into my phone. And this is before they even had an editing feature. So I tell people like I'm squatting down in my closet and my kids and dog are making noise and I'm creating this podcast, putting one foot in front of the other, got on Instagram. And then within about a year and a half had like 70,000 followers on Instagram and you know, like half a million downloads on the podcast. And it's so great. And it's grown into a community podcast. My my co-host who came on became the owner of it. She's a black woman and anti-racism educator. And we really wanted to make sure that black women were leading this. So she took over ownership of it. And it was just this collective thing. But I love, I love, I love the average everyday person, right? And the the power that we have as individuals to change the world. And it's so weird, yes. like the cult of personality and the way that people, you know, put you up on a pedestal after you've been on social yes. media for a period of time. And I'm just like, yep. no, 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 no. It's not about the people with the big platforms. Because no. if we're all sitting on our asses, unaware of the potential we have as human beings, what's mm-hmm. that about? Right. So just to be able to empower people to step into, you know, where they're being called and what's exciting them. Yes. I love that. So I really appreciate that's the ball that. game. 
Yeah, absolutely. You got it. So with your book, when does it come out? Yeah, it comes out June 1st, and uh, you can order it at, through um, Hearts and Minds book. Mm-hmm. Um, or, I mean, you can go to the big guy. I mean, Amazon has it for pre-order mm-hmm. right now, so you can go pre-order, which would be rad. As many people pre-order as possibly would be fantastic. But it comes out June 1st. Awesome. And then where can people follow you and find you? Um, my most active places are still Facebook and um instagram Mm -hmm. i spend some time on twitter it's not as enjoyable it used to be so i don't spend a whole lot of time on twitter but uh facebook and instagram mostly instagram i'm justin mcroberts (laughs) i'm justin mcroberts everywhere i go you're you're the lucky one who got that right i i guess so there's like me and like three other dudes out there named justin mcroberts so that's funny they didn't get it first i'm older i think than all of them thank you so much for coming on the show my pleasure Mm -hmm. 